All right, this morning let's take our Bibles today uh, and turn to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. We have been looking at uh, the marriage from God's perspective, and today we, and from last week to this week, we've been looking at the special kind of headship for husbands. We're going to be looking at chapter 5, verses 25 through 30, most likely I will be spending time on verse 27 and 28. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, please be merciful to us. We are sinners, Lord, and to those who know you, they have been saved by your grace. And Lord, we need your mercy and grace in our marriages we need the spirit of god to take control so lord we can change the things that we must change we ought to change and that we can grow in our families every day so every day our families and our the relationship between a husband and wife starts looking more like how christ loves loves the church Lord, enable us to do that by your Spirit. Take the Word of God and challenge us today in wherever you need to. And use it, Lord, to build up your church. Use it, Lord, to encourage husbands that by your Spirit they can put into practice these things. And Lord, we'll give you the praise for what you'll accomplish. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Now, I, I have recently said that... It is no mistake that this teaching of the special kind of submission for wives and the special kind of headship for husbands is placed right smack in the section of Scripture that talks about the practical outworking of Christian doctrine, specifically the contrast between a foolish way to walk through this world and a wise way to walk. Of course, Scripture has brought us uh, to the place where a wise walk of the, a spirit-controlled believer has the unmistakable proof of the spirit's power because the spirit is producing spiritual fruit in their life because they are following Jesus Christ. Marriage is in view now. And marriage is the place where the Holy Spirit is reestablishing the proper role of the wife and the husband. And of course, for sure, this task of wifely submission and husbandly headship is too great a duty for sinful, weak human beings. None of us, none of us can fulfill these imperatives without the Holy Spirit working in our lives so that the process of sanctification takes place in our marriages and continues to grow to represent and to imitate our Lord's character. So both the wife and the husband have been given a task by God of exhibiting Jesus Christ in their marriages. That is a very important thing for the Lord. The distinction is one 
of roles only. So in the home, Christ has the authority. And that authority is centered in on the husband, not the wife, not the children, but the husband. In verse number 23, which I already looked at, it says this of Ephesians 5, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. So it is the husband's responsibility to see that his God-given authority is exercised in ways that properly honor Christ. The Christian view of marriage can only be fully understood. Can't get this information anywhere else. It's only found in God's word. And God's word is the truth, and when we begin to implement, understand and implement God's word, then we can actually see in practice what he's talking about in the scriptures. So see, we cannot fully understand what it means for a husband to love his wife unless we understand the Lord Jesus Christ's love for his church, his bride. Yes, the body of believers are the bride of Christ. Right now, we're not perfect. Right now, we're being perfected, but we're not perfect. And so this passage scripture lends itself to that teaching so we understand it. So husbands ought to learn what the will of the Lord is concerning their role as the husband in the home and then to go home and practice it until you see it, until it's evident, until you have repented of certain sins and put those sins down and are actually practicing your love for your wife. So a husband has been given by God to have a special kind of headship. And so far we have uh, learned that, number one, a headship that is special because there's a special kind of responsibility. And that responsibility, of course, is that he is the head. And he is to be a good manager of the home. He is to be a good manager of his household. He is to be a good servant leader in the home using preserving care towards his wife and his family. A second thing that I mentioned, which I want to expand on this morning, actually is found in verse number 25, that a head, God has given us man, men a headship that is special because it has a special kind of affection. Now, I mentioned it last week, but notice in verse 25 again, it says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. See, the authority, the responsibility, and power given to the husband, all of them are tempered by love. It is the Holy Spirit of God that gives power. It is also the Holy Spirit of God that gives love. So a husband is to love his wife just like Christ loves the church. See, the Lord has a sacrificial affection toward his church. So a husband is to have a sacrificial affection toward his wife. And what is that affection in verse 25? Jesus Christ gave himself up for her. He died for her. He died for her sin. 
Now, not that a husband can do that. That's not what a husband is called to do. That's what Christ has done. Christ does, but a husband is to give himself up for his wife in daily living for her. So a husband, when, when you see your wife in all her imperfections and faults and deficiencies and failures and sins, and you want to condemn her, and you want to squabble with her and play the blame shift game with her, if you're going to love her, it has to be with the sacrificial affection. In other words, you can't go there. You can't go there anymore when you're controlled by the Holy Spirit. So see, husbands, you must remember the way in which Christ loved you, the way in which Christ endeared himself to you, and how he supremely loved you by dying, taking the condemnation for your sin, by being your substitute sacrifice by paying the full penalty by shedding his blood and by then defeating Satan and death and rising from the grave and then ascending into heaven in which the Lord is praying for us, interceding for us. So in spite of your stance towards your bride, it must be a special kind of affection that resembles God's love. So something of the selfless love and care and sacrifice that Jesus Christ shows to the church is supposed to be evident in the husbands as they relate to the wife. And also, it's the husband or the wife that there, there needs to be a respect, a submission, and a devotion that the church shows toward Jesus that is to be evident in the wives as they relate to their husbands. Now, I need to go back a, a little bit to some of the New Testament terms that I gave you last week because I came across several other words that in, are included in the relational love that is connected to marital love. And I think they're important to throw out one more time to you. Because there must be an understanding of these loves to understand the use of the word love in our passage in verse number 25. Because husbands are commanded to love their wives with the highest kind of love, and that is the love that God has for us. Now, the words that I'm talking about is the first word is a word, epithemia. It is a Greek word that the Bible never calls love. However, it describes a very important aspect of the love affair between a husband and a wife. It means a strong desire of any kind, whether it be good, sometimes bad. It means to set your heart on, to long for, to rightfully or otherwise covet something. To want something so bad that your, your desires are consumed by it. Used in the Bible in a negative way, it means to lust. We all understand that word, don't we? All right? We all understand the word lust. It's everywhere. It's all over the place. We do it. We've done it. Um, so it's not hard to explain or to understand. But when the Bible uses this word in a positive way, it just simply means desire. Desire. 
So in marriage, husband and wife should have a strong physical desire for each other that it really is express, it expresses itself in pleasurable, pleasurable sexual lovemaking. Yes, I said that. But that's in the Bible. I don't know if you ever read Song of Solomon. It is about the love affair between a man and a woman, and it is graphic. Because the Bible doesn't go out of its way to pull punches from us. It gives us reality the way it is, the way it ought to be, the way it ought to be. And so this word is used, and it does describe part of the love that goes along with the marital relationship. And the, another word, word is eros, which I mentioned last week, but I want to add to it. It's a kind of a selfish desire. It's a natural love, engaging the passions and desires. Eros is kind of like the romantic, passionate, sentimental part of love. However, eros, eros has a real problem. And here's the problem. It needs help. Because it's changeable and cannot last for a lifetime by itself. This love is, it really offers wonderful emotions and personal rewards because it is a gift of God to creation by God himself, but it does need help. It doesn't last long without help. And then there's the word that I didn't mention last week, storge. And this kind of marital love has been described as a comfortable Kind of like old shoe relationship. You know the old shoes you never want to throw out because they're so comfortable, they're so broken in? Well, yeah, it's that kind of love, meaning uh, it's, it, sorge is a love in marriage that meets the need to belong. It, it, it's, a, it's a love uh, to have a belonging, to be part of a close-knit circle where people care and give the utmost loyalty to each other. See, when president marriage... It provides an atmosphere of security, of comfort, in which the other loves in marriage can safely dwell and flourish. So the marriage that is lacking in this quality is usually um, marriage that it's like some have described as a house without a roof. And all the elements just pile in on that place. All right. So therefore, it doesn't become a place of comfort it becomes a place of turmoil. And so that's part of marital love too. And then there's the word phileo, which is the word uh, the scripture uses to mean brotherly love, friendly love, companionship. Phileo cherishes and, t and, and really uh, has a tender affection for dear friends. But the, the strange thing about phileo love or friendship love is that it always expects a response. It's very hard to be friendly with somebody if they never respond to you. Matter of fact, you don't consider somebody your friend if there's no back and forth, right? A friend is you're back and forth with each other. And that is also included in having a good, strong marriage. All these words are included in Scripture to describe the, the love that takes place between a man and a woman in marriage. Now, all those loves that I've just mentioned are all natural and can fall under the umbrella of God's common grace to all humanity, no matter where you are, wherever you live. But this next love, the love used in verse number 25, it is, it is a special love. It is a special grace of God. It is the word 
agape, to love or to have affection for. It is used only of God's love, specifically as its source, it's used of God. It is special, this word is special in several respects. The first respect is this, because only genuine Christians can understand, can have, and can experience it. Secondly, it is a love that is exercised as a choice of your will. It is not dependent on feelings. Now, I did not say feelings are not included in it, but it is a love that is not dependent on them. And today, much love is dependent on the way I feel. Well, I don't feel I love you anymore. You, you hear this all the time. Well, see, this, you can't say this about this love because if it was up to feelings, Christ would have never died for you and I on the cross. See, it was an act of God's will to put into place the needed things for us to be saved, for us to have a relationship with God through Christ. It could have never happened if it wasn't for this agape love that I am speaking of here. So it is a love of action, not emotion. It focuses on what you do and say rather than how you feel. And there's a third way that I can, or thing that goes with this love is a love that resembles God's love. It proceeds from the character of God. It is a love, like it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. It is that love. Now, C.S. Lewis showed the difference between the agape love the godly love, and all the natural loves that I just mentioned by using a picture of a garden. And he described the natural loves as a garden that would soon run to weeds if left alone. And so all those loves, and that's why marriages break up, because all those loves get a lot of weeds in them. But see, most people don't want to take the effort to de-weed their garden they don't want to take the effort to, uh, to make things the way they ought to be to have a good marriage. So left alone, it would just, the weeds, you know what weeds do, right? They just take over. They just take over. And they seem to grow bigger, and they spread out more than the real stuff. And they're just aggravating, all right? They are aggravating. And so nobody really wants to do that. But it's inevitable that weeds are going to be in our marriage because of self-centeredness, of willfulness, and other sins resulting from the fall of mankind away from God and into sin. Now, agape, though, agape love, godly love, acts as a rake. It acts as a hoe, as shears, as plant food, as weed killer that's employed by a skillful gardener to keep the garden thriving orderly and beautiful. So when God planted the garden of our new nature and caused the flowering and the fruiting loves to grow there, he also set our will to tend them, to watch over them and to care for them as a wise gardener should. So the operation of the will is agape love. 
the operation of the will is considered to be an agape love. It's a love that is knowledgeable and skillful and always concerned with doing what is best for its beloved. That's the love we're talking about here. So agape love is plugged into the eternal power source, and it can go on operating when all the other kind of loves have failed. Not only that, it loves no matter what. No matter how unlovable the other person is, agape can keep flowing. Now, don't understand, don't misunderstand me, epithet. Thumia, Eros, Sorge, and Phileo are all loves needed to have a good, healthy marriage. Nonetheless, only Christians can understand, possess, and experience all these loves, especially agape love. You know, that means that if you're a believer, if you trusted Christ as your Lord and your Savior, and your marriage is not going so good, there is hope because Christian marriages have this special kind of love there. It's given to you by God. It's there for you, and it's there for all of us who are married, who have a wife or a wife who has a husband, and it's there for us to always implement in the home. So when we do so, of course, our homes, the, par- the paramount thing in our home will be, it will be a God-centered marriage, It is a love, this agape love is a love that will keep you in the race for the long haul. Marriage for the long run. Now that's the title of our marriage conference that if you have not signed up for, uh, today you need to sign up. And if for somehow you cannot sign up, for whatever reason, you come and see me because I want you to be there. I want you to be there because we all need encouragement and, and break away from the normal routine and and get under the word of God and be challenged again uh, in our marriages, right? No matter how long you've been married, doesn't matter. Uh, we need that. So that's why this scripture that we're looking at here directs us to why Christ, what Christ has done for his church. The death of our Lord Jesus is once for all by, what I'm saying is that the death of our Lord Jesus was once for all, and then After that, it's the sanctifying, ongoing process. The Holy Spirit is actually using the headship of the wife's loving husband as a prominent instrument in her progressive sanctification. So that brought me to a third special thing about headship, and that headship is special because it, of its ongoing sanctification. Now look at verse number 26. It says this, that in verse 26, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, and that he might present himself, the church in all her glory, and so on and so forth. See, so it's forgiveness and deliverance from condemnation and hell are means to a further end. That is why... That is why Christ has done what he has done for the church because he had a plan, he had a purpose beyond his sacrificial, his substitutionary, his atoning death on the cross. He justified us, but now he is sanctifying his church. And he's doing that. He's taking special care to sanctify us. In fact, 
in our text, there's a twofold purpose of the self-sacrifice of Christ. There's an immediate reason for Jesus dying for the church, and there is a, of course, ultimate reason for Jesus dying for the church. Now, the immediate reason is found in verse number 26. It's present sanctification, and it's present God, like it says, so that he might sanctify her, cleansing her by the washing of water with the word. So the washing from the guilt of sin was once and forever. However, cleansing is not only from the guilt of sin and the power of sin, it is from the pollution of sin, that sin has made us dirty. Sin does make us dirty, and it has stained and polluted our natures. But nonetheless, Christ must go on sanctifying his bride. He must go on setting her apart. So see, Christ died for you. And having died for you, he goes on sanctifying you. He goes on, in our passage, cleansing you. He goes on washing you. And in other words, he's preparing you and I for something special. He's preparing his whole church for something special. And how does he do that sanctification? In our text, is done mainly through the word of God so that he might sanctify her by cleansing her by the washing of water with the word. See, Christ has selected, separated, and sanctified for himself his bride, and he will finally make her perfect. So the immediate reason for Jesus giving himself to die for the church was so that he might sanctify and cleanse it so that the ultimate object for which Christ gave himself would happen. And what's that? The ultimate reason for Jesus dying for the church? Well, that's future consummation. Verse number 27. It says that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having not, no spot or wrinkle or any such things, but that she would be holy and blameless. That's when Christ and his church become, come together. In fact, if you notice here, did you see what, what it says in our text? It says that so that Christ can present his bride to himself. Now, if you notice and if you're looking at your Bibles, you'll say there that that seems odd because the bride is usually presented to the husband by the father or a near relative or a friend. Just like in Revelation, no one but Jesus was worthy to open the scroll and break the seals. Only Jesus Christ, the line of Judah, the root of David, has fought the greatest battle and conquered and won. So you see, what it's saying here is that no one is adequate to present the bride to Christ except himself. He's the only one adequate to present the church, us, to himself. Now, when does this presentation take place? Well, it takes place in the end times, in the final days, at the coming of Christ for his church, the end time, of course, presentation will be when the church is ethically and spiritually made perfect on that last day. It is like when Paul, the Apostle Paul, was talking about the Corinthian church, and he says, knowing that he who raised, 
the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. There's going to be a presentation before God himself by Christ, and that presentation is going to be his church. It's going to be his bride, who right now he's cleansing. Right now he's setting it us aside. He's working on us and growing us every single day. But if you notice what it says in our text, what will his bride look like? What will we look like someday? Well, it says she will be prepared and ready for her husband. This is a picture of a wife getting, excuse me, this is a picture of a woman getting ready to, for her wedding day. And you know all the preparations that take place for a woman getting ready for her wedding day. Matter of fact, those preparations take months, many months. And many things have to get done. And it's all for that one day. It's all for that one day. And that's what the Lord's doing with us. He said in John, I, to his disciples, when he was leaving, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Right? And I will receive you unto myself. And where I am, you will be with me. See, that's the promise to the church. And what's that promise? The promise is the husband is coming for the bride the husband is coming but while the husband's away the husband is preparing a place for the bride and this is a picture of a jewish wedding this is a picture of a jewish wedding that when uh, a man and a woman in israel got engaged they had an engagement ceremony he would pay the price for his bride right christ pays the price for his bride on the cross by satisfying the father with his own blood right the husband pays the father-in-law for the bride and he pays the money and then the husband doesn't immediately go and consummate the marriage he goes away for a year and he goes and prepares a place for his bride and then what he does close to the end of that year he and his entourage goes without announcing the specific day or time and goes through the village where his uh, wife is, pre his prepared wife is, and he goes in there, and of course the word gets back to her, and all her maids come, and they get her ready for the husband coming. And then, of course, that becomes the day where there's the consummation happens, the man and the woman come together sexually, all right? And that's when the contract turns into the consummation, and the whole town's involved. In fact, it's such a celebration, they celebrate for seven days. Imagine how, what that would cost today, all right? But they sell, it's, and it's an exciting time. And so that's the picture that's going on here in our text. But I want you to notice in verse number 27 how the Lord Jesus Christ prepares the bride. This is his goal. This is his ultimate goal for all of us who know Christ as their Lord and Savior, it says that she will be prepared and ready for her husband, and there will be a day when Christ will present to himself, notice in verse 27, a church in all her glory, a glorious church, that he might present the church as glorious. And right now, we live in a world of sin, and sin makes the church splattered with dirt Christ's people may rightly be accused today of many shortcomings and failures, but she is being cleansed 
She is being prepared. And when she is ready for presentation before Christ, by Christ, she will be without certain things. She will have all the brilliance and beauty and purity of Christ himself. And notice what it says also in verse number 27. Having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. See, she will be without speckle, without fleck, without stain, without blemish. There will not even be the slightest fragment of unworthiness or of sin in her. Neither Satan nor anyone else will be able to accuse her because her splendor, because of her splendor, that none will be able to find anything wrong. She will be perfect. And if there will be, there will be no sign of aging, no wrinkles left in the church, everything will will. Be smooth. Everything will be smoothed out and the church will have renewed her youth. See, the beauty and health and symmetry of the bride will all point to spiritual perfection. But that's not it. If you notice, the ultimate goal for God in saving us is found in verse 27. The last part of the verse, it says, but she would be holy and blameless. Now, where did we see this before? Look back to chapter 1 of Ephesians. Chapter 1, flip to chapter 1, look at verse 3 and 4, what it says there. Remember, the source of our election was the Father himself. The source of our rich blessing that comes from God is the grace of the Heavenly Father. And it says in verse number 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. What? That we would be what? Holy and blameless before him in love. This has always been God's goal for his people. In fact, somebody who's really a believer, this is what God's doing. He's cleaning you up. And he's making you ready for his, this presentation. And the day that we as a church, as a body, is presented before Christ, by Christ, to the Father, we will be absolutely perfect. There will be nothing to turn us away. There will be nothing God himself finds in his church that he is displeased with. And remember when I talked about election, I gave an old creed definition of election, and it was simply this, that God saves from corruption and damnation those he has chosen from the foundation of the world, not for any disposition or faith or holiness that he foresaw in them, but of his mere mercy in Christ. Jesus, his son, passing by all the rest according to the irreprehensible, uh, irreprehensible and reason of his own free will and justice. That's agape love. That's the love there. That God doesn't choose us because he, he saw something good in you. you. You and I had nothing good in us. He saw, he saw sin. He saw ungodliness. He saw things that he would have to judge and condemn you and send you and I to a lost eternity forever. But because of this love that 
flows from the very character and nature of God. What does he do? He elects us in Christ before the world was even created. And then he set in motion the plan of redemption where Christ would come and he would do the work. So Jesus Christ can cleanse the bride, purify the bride, and make the bride ready for the presentation. It's just like, if you'd like to take your Bibles, if you look over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse number 2, it was, it was again uh, Paul as a friend of the bridegroom is to present the Corinthians as a pure virgin to Christ. And notice what he says in 2 Corinthians eleven two: For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. And that's another way of saying, talking about this presentation that Christ is going to make of his church. And I believe the Lord's psyched and motivated about this particular day that's coming. He is like a husband waiting for his virgin bride. And that's going to be an exciting day. The day has not yet come. We are still in the process of being cleansed. So see, Christ tenderly cares for his body, the church, and uses great means to cleanse her from all her imperfections. And Christ is both the church's head and savior, and in sacrificial love, Christ gave himself up for the church in order to sanctify it, and he continuously provides for its nourishment and growth. Now, men, now what does that have to do with you husbands? If Christ takes care of his bride like that, that's what we ought to do. Now you say, well, where did I get that from? Well, look at verse 28. Here's a headship that is special because of self-love, not self-esteem. This has nothing to do with self-esteem. Look what it says. So husbands, verse 28, ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. In other words, it is very common thing for a man to take care of his own body, is it not? There are several words in our text that uses, uh, uh, actually describes this self, how this self-love looks. The bottom line here is that the husband ought to love his wife in the same manner he cares for his own body. That's, that's just the natural thing. This is a, that's a normal thing. It's easy to understand. There's no complication here in this text. It's pretty simple. That the husband is to tenderly nurture his wife as he cares for his own body. It says in verse number 29, but nourishes her, right? How, why does he nourish her? Because Christ nourishes and the church. He feeds her. That's what it means. It means to provide his body food. And he, so he's concerned about his own health. He's concerned about his own growth. He's concerned about his own well-being. And when you're hungry, what do you do, man? You go off and you get something to eat, right? You go to your favorite little place and you get what you want to feed your stomach. Why? Because 
you know, you don't want that stomach to start growling. You want to be able to provide for your your health. Now, of course, if you're health conscious, then you won't eat at fast food places too often, but you will definitely want to keep yourself healthy, but you'll also want to keep your soul healthy by nourishing it with the Word of God. You'll also want to keep your mind healthy and your thoughts healthy because you're, you are concerned about the well-being of your whole body. Well, that's exactly what the man ought to do with his wife, that this is Christ's concern for his bride and Christ's concern for uh, concern about the health and the growth and the development and the well-being of his church. Well, that's what the husband ought to do. And what he, what, he, what he ought to do is he provides, what does the Lord do? He provides gifts to the church. Remember we saw back in Ephesians chapter 4 in verse number 12 where he says, For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith until we all become, grow and mature in Christ-likeness. And then the Lord also gives us, provides our spiritual enlightenment. He turns on the lights. He shows us what the truth is. But he also supplies us spiritual food. And that spiritual food I've already mentioned is the word of God. Just like Peter says, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. So be sure of this, brethren. You are not done with scriptures after you make an initial profession of faith. You must really receive confirmation of your profession of faith that is genuine. You will receive assurance but you will receive assurance by the Holy Spirit of God through the Scriptures. And once you are confident that you are a Christian and you see some spiritual fruit in your life and, are, and are, you are still even then never done with the Scriptures, that the Spirit of God also begins to transform your mind. The Spirit of God's tool for transformation is the very Word of God. He must correct everything that's wrong in our thinking. That's almost everything. And all things spiritually are definitely wrong. And he does it through the teaching of the word of God. He teaches us how to worship, how to pray, how to witness, how to love God, how to love people, how to put off sin, how to put off righteousness, how to live righteously in this world. And how to be a faithful servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, you're never, never done with the word of God. Ever, ever, ever. You are never done hearing God speak to you through his word. This, the word of God is spiritual food. And you must have it. You must have it to grow. So that is why the passage of scripture that we're looking at is so important. Because the husband is the one who... Make sure that his wife is being spiritually fed, being fed in her soul about what God wants her to know. See, I pray that the Bible has become your close companion. I pray that you have a Bible that's worn out, that's falling apart because of use. And if you are using electronics, I pray that you're using the U version of the Bible. If you have that on your app, 
One thing good about that, that version is that you, uh, it can track your uh, Bible reading every single day if you're reading through the scripture, and it can, it can give you where you're at. It can even send you texts and emails if you dropped off a few days and say, hey, listen, you've got to get back on track. See, that's, some of us need that. But I've been using it for uh, about a year now, about a year and a half now, and I really, really enjoy it, actually, uh, because it's right there, get up, boom. It's always clear on, on the electronic media. You don't have to worry, you know, focus your eyes because of the screen. But so do that. So, uh, you know, are you bringing your, your I, if you're bringing your iPad, your iPhone, your Android, whatever you're bringing, make sure that you're wearing that out. You're, you know, you wear down at least the iPad, the iPhone, the, ice, the screens, and wear out your paper, paper Bibles. Don't let your Bible rot from lack of use, but wear it out for overuse, and keep in mind that things wear out because they're used. So nourishment is primarily provided by the Lord Jesus through the word of God. He says in the scriptures, sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. And then in verse number 29, it says that the husband is to tenderly cherish his wife as he cares for his own body. He cherishes his body. And so he is now to cherish his wife. And the word, of course, cherish here means literally to comfort, but it also means to clothe. It speaks of an attitude of caring, of valuing, of looking after her tenderly. That the husband should learn to understand his wife, in an, like it says in Peter, in an understanding way. Since she is weaker, since she is a woman. And of course, this understanding way is to investigate your wife, to have a, a conscious sensitivity to who she is. So husbands need to know his wife. He needs to know her, her moods. What, I don't know why that's doing that, uh, um, but it's, I don't like it. <laughs> it hasn't done it before. He, he really needs to know her feelings, what makes her happy and sad. He needs to know her thoughts, uh, you know, her, what does she think? How does she feel about something? What does she want? What does God want for her? She, he needs to know about her needs. What does she really need at particular times in her life? What does she fear? What are her hopes and dreams? Husband is someone who ought to be taking care of some of those things. So God has really given Christian husbands an important task of that which there should be no excuse to claim ignorance. Because there are certain things that could be spiritual killers too. Like leaving the Lord out, not having the Lord first in your life as a husband is, is really a spiritual killer. There's also intimacy killers like words being insensitive and unkind and demeaning with words to be short in your temper and demanding in your ways. Also to be unreliable and inattentive and thoughtless and unworthy and irresponsible. One survey that was taken revealed that the average husband and wife spend about 37 minutes a week together in actual communication. 
You know what that is? That's 5.3 minutes a day. That should not be. If we're to carry these things out, that should not be. Now, why, why should Christ and why should we provide nourishment and security to our wife? I think the answer is real simple in Scripture. It's, it's simply this. We're one flesh now. If I hurt me, I hurt her. If I use demeaning words, I hurt both of us. Both of us are hurt in a relationship where now you're one flesh. And so, therefore, you're actually, husbands are actually shooting themselves in the foot if they are not treating their wife like Christ treats the church. See, that's why it says in Scripture, why are we to do that? Because Christ also does it to the church because we are members of his body. We are not only hurting our wives, we are actually doing a disservice to what the Lord has called us to do. See, the Lord knows our limitations. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our frustrations. He knows our fears. These are all basic needs provided by Christ to his church and, of course, husbands to their wives. So we're to express a caring, providing, protecting nature of the sanctifying love that we are to have for our wives, a love that desires the development and healthy growth of the wife. And I think we should also realize that as we consider these things, that God's design for marriage is to portray the eternal, the wonderful love, the relationship between Jesus Christ and his bride, the church, and also, which I'm going to get to next time, is the true romantic love there that is necessary and is a necessary component of the marriage relationship in order to complete the picture of Christ's love to his people. Now, just getting down to simple terms, no man walks around jabbing himself with a needle just because he's bored. No normal man. Or irritated because he has nothing else to do. See, why then should any husband representing Christ want to hurt his wife with sharp, cutting words or actions simply because he's irritated or just because he thinks he can? I think some men feel that they should be tyrants in their home. Instead, I think husbands ought to be like the scriptures say, loving, protecting, and providing for their lives. See, the little things do count. Men sometimes believe that they're good husbands if they work hard, if they provide a place to live and plenty of food and, and provide necessary clothing and play with the children and take the wife out occasionally and are uncomplaining for most of the time, and they think that we've done really well. Well, that's not necessarily true. All these things ought to be done. They should be done in the home. Well, what I mean is that women are creatures of romance. To be our sweethearts, they must be romanced. And the basic meaning of romance is to be admired. Just as Christ admires his perfect bride, the husband is to admire his wife. Admiring your wife for who she is. In other words, as 
long as man lives, he needs to still court and dine and give gifts to and make love to his wife. You see, men, when we first met our wives and we first started courting our wives, we were mindful of the little things. We sent her little gifts, notes, cards, emails, e-cards, you know, caring texts. We spoke with courtesy to her. We found ways to be attentive and thoughtful to her. But some men, not all, as soon as the pastor said, I pronounce you man and wife, the man thinks, I said I do, I'm done. I'm done. And as time, of course, races on and life gets very, very busy, the romance to the wife just seems to be like a fading memory. See, Christ does not leave us alone. He romances his church. He loves his church. He loves his people. One person said, men, your marriage should be like a romantic trip on a love boat, not a routine ride on a 7 a.m. commuter train. So it really doesn't matter what vocation you are in, what income you have, what situation you are presently in. You ought to learn men, including myself, I'm preaching to myself today, how creatively you should be in your marriage to keep it alive and keep that element of romance. And may I, we, men, we all ought to realize that we probably sense an uneasiness at this juncture uh, in the message. And the reason why is because we all fall short of the standard. We all have things to work on in our marriage. And we all definitely fall short after a while of being romantic. Of continuing to woo our wives. Continuing to understand them. Well, you know, I kind of looked up some things and um, said, I, th I think I better get a woman's perspective on this. And so I read some things some women said. Maybe that would help to, uh, you know, kind of prime your creative pump and things that were necessarily not expensive, all right? And, and this is what a woman said. She said, listen, men, you think you have to get big things, but you don't. You have to stay with the little stuff, like when you're recording. And she says this, phone her at work to tell her you were thinking nice thoughts of her. Now, that seems simple, but this is what she suggests. Another thing is uh, break your regular routine some evening and whisk away to a Starbucks to talk and sip your favorite beverage and talk about how wonderful the Lord has been to both of you. Break the normal routine. Here's another one uh, that, of course, I don't think I've ever done. But draw a bath for her after dinner. Put a scented candle in the bathroom, add bath oil to the bath, and send her right there after dinner, and you clean up the kitchen and do the dishes. Men, we don't come up with that. 
That's why I knew I was walking on very dangerous territory. In fact, in fact, that when it comes to preaching messages on the home, I would rather not do it. And only for the sake of my own weaknesses and my own shortcomings. I say to myself, am I qualified to preach this stuff? Am I qualified to even dabble on the surface of what the Lord is telling husbands to be and what they ought to be because they have the Spirit of God. She also says there to write a note and drop it in the mail. To text her during the week and ask her out for one evening that weekend without telling her where you are taking her. And of course, there's some other things she suggested that I'm not at liberty to talk about in the pulpit. All right? So for the husband and the wife to be happy in their marriage, they must be together. They must live together. They must work together. They must think together. They, They must plan together. They must play together. They must worship together. They must loving being together. They must love that. That should never end, ever end in your marriage. And once your way for love to grow stronger with the years is for the husband and the wife to seek one another's companionship in all phases of their life together as partners, lovers, friends, and companions. See, husbands, ultimately make your wife glad she's a woman and glad she's your wife. And learn to appreciate her preparing the meals and taking care of the children and keeping the house and all the other myriad of things that she does that we don't recognize. So men, become experts at developing developing situations which communicated to her, you care for her. And then romantic things to say that you're excited about her and through a multitude of different ways that you are very glad that she is your wife and very thankful to God that God has given to her, to you. Uh, He's given her to you as a special gift. If you looked at it like that, and we looked at it like that as, as men, things would be different in the home. I like what Proverbs says at this point. It says, her children rise up and bless her. And then it says this, her husband also, and he praises her. And this is what he says to her. Many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. There's no one like you. And then he says this, but a woman who fears the Lord shall be praised. He's praising her because of, specifically because of her relationship with God, with the Lord. So, it is a wise husband who will often tell his wife how much he appreciates her. No husband ever lost by taking time to build up his wife. I think also, wives, a loving and loyal wife means much to a husband's happiness, well-being, and success in life. That's why when we get to it, 
it says, the last verse in verse 33 of Ephesians 5, that the wife is to respect her husband. That's what it says. But I'm not going to touch that today. So husbands, because you are one flesh, if you have, if you harm or neglect your wife, you are harming and neglecting yourself and not imitating the Lord as you should. On the other hand, when you nourish and cherish and take loving care of your wife, you are blessing yourself also. And you are imitating the Lord as you should. That is when agape love is seen and practiced in the home, when those things take place. Now, I know you have a lot of work to do, and so do I. But by the Spirit of God's power, this is what God calls for. And it can be done. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for the Word of God. It is, it is awesome, Lord, to look at Scripture and to see the things that are contained therein. And it seems like even when we look at them, Lord, there is a sense that we haven't covered everything. We haven't seen everything that's there. And Lord, it also gives us the sense that we have not lived the way we ought to. We have not given ourselves over to the Spirit of God's control in this area of being husbands that love their wife like Christ loved the church. I pray, Lord, that that would be something all of us men would be very, very mindful of from this day forward. And I pray, Lord, every day we would give ourselves over to you that these things would take place in our life, in our attitude, in our words, in our thinking, Lord, that it would all honor you and that you would bring us to a place that our marriages more and more start looking like and start imitating how Christ loves the church. Help us to do this, Lord, and I pray this in your name. Amen.